Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, welcome to Orange Crest Community Church. I'm Josh Tillerosa. Thanks for logging on to our site and Hey, we're wrapping up this series of messages today. We've been working through a handful of messages on uh, the idea of community, which we've been looking at. Why do we gather together as a community? What is it that we hold in common together? What is our common unity? So far, we've looked at our common hope in Jesus. Here at OCC, we build a foundation on uh, belief in Jesus Christ. Then we looked at our common mission, then our common strategy and our common uh, values, our common aim. And today I want to wrap things up by looking at how we have a common table. And table, I literally mean the tables that we gather around when we share life together. Tables gather people and they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. They show up in dining rooms. They show up in conference rooms. They, they show up in places of learning where we learn together around a table. Uh, they even show up in backyards where we gather and just relax together with those that we're close to. But the function of a table is to hold the items that the that really host the group. And I want you to think about the significance of of your own living room table or your own kitchen table as you gather people around those places. People have come through the front door of your home and there's really a significant uh, aspect of your front door. It is the threshold. It's where a person moves from the outside of your house uh, from whether an outsider, a guest, a, a, a solicitor, uh, to the inside. Now they are, <clears throat> they have joined you in your home and they're inside. They're no longer outside, they're inside now. They've crossed through that threshold. And then you gather around a table. Let's just think in, in terms of our dining room table. You're, that is where you share all of your meals as, as a household. So whether that's your family or your roommates, but that, that is sort of a sacred space. Your table is, is where you, you share life together as you enjoy meals. So think about the significance of gathering around your table and when you invite people to move from the outside of your life or your world or your household and you move them into your inside inner world. You invite them around your table. Now you prepare a meal for them and you set that meal upon that table. And it takes time. You prepare the meal. You It costs you something. And in a sense, you sacrifice uh, to share in this gathering. And this table, it, it has deep significance in that way. And so the table really does represent a breakthrough into much deeper trust and much more sharing, a, a level of sharing. You're getting below the surface at the table. And so we're going to look at this idea through this this message how meal tables actually help create community. That's the last piece I want to look at in this series. We share a common table, and community is formed and enhanced around meal tables. And that's what made these moments in the Bible so significant. And I want to just highlight a handful of experiences where you see Jesus and the church gathering around tables. So first, let's look at Jesus with his disciples. We'll look at Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. And this is where Jesus actually calls a person to follow him, one who, a man who becomes one of his disciples. The man's name is Levi. We might also know him as Matthew. 
Uh, but let's look at the story. After this, this is Matthew 5, 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So Levi was a Jewish man working for the Roman government. The Ro- Romans occupied uh, the uh, this uh, this city. And Levi, in a sense, worked for the enemy. He worked for the Romans. So he was... Uh, really uh, despised by his own countrymen. Well, Jesus goes to this man working for the Roman government, and he, he here's a person that Jesus decides and selects and invites to come and be one of his followers. So he invites him from his tax booth to come and follow me. Verse 28, so leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Literally, he left his job there, uh, that rep, his job represented a way of life, a way of where he looked, you know, as far as his source of dependency, uh, his his income and resources, all of that was wrapped up in this role. And Jesus says, "Leave that old life, come and follow me." It's a powerful invitation. Verse twenty nine. Then Levi hosted a great banquet for him at his house. So Jesus is now invited by Levi into his inner world with his people. Levi's people. It says, now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him. This was Levi's group. This was his friendship circle. And he's inviting Jesus to come into his inner world. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and their scribes, these were religious leaders of the day, were complaining to, to his, Jesus' disciples. They're criticizing Jesus. And here's what they said. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus turns to these critics and he replies to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus was willing to step into Matthew's, Levi's inner world. And this was a significant uh, both invitation and an acceptance of that request to step into his world, to reach a deeper level of trust. Uh, Matthew had indeed chosen to follow Jesus and he wanted to. Uh, he wanted to move in, in depth uh, to a new place of relationship with Jesus as one of his followers now. Look look a little further in the book of Luke. As Jesus is traveling with his disciples from town to town, at, at one point, Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says, While they were traveling, this is Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So again, this is a significant piece of information. We're learning that Jesus was willing to cross that threshold from the outside world to the inner world of people's lives. He had this pattern that he developed. It said that Martha had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. So Martha's fixing the meal for Jesus who's visiting with all his disciples. And Mary is just taking in every word that Jesus is teaching and talking about. He's, she's just listening in, captivated by, by Jesus and time with him. Martha's busy preparing a meal. I, I'm highlighting this just because Jesus was willing. He was invited in, and he was willing to accept those invitations to share life more up close with people. And you begin to see the depth, the level of trust that he began to have with more and more people. Uh, if you look at the book of John... Early on in the book of John, you start seeing Jesus calling and inviting uh, people to follow him. And so you see when Jesus invited a man named Andrew and a man named Peter. And in verse 38, it reads this. 
When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, this man Andrew and, and Peter, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now Jesus actually extends the invitation. Come and you'll see, he replies. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. And so I'm highlighting that because, again, this was the pattern of Jesus with his disciples. Uh, sharing meals together, being uh, up close with people, sharing life together was just the way that he did things. Uh, also, fellowship was later the pattern uh, with not only the closest disciples, but moving back to Mary and Martha, it says this, Matthew, or in John chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it reads this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus has raised, had raised from the dead. So, uh, you could read about this man, Lazarus. Lazarus, uh, The chapter before, Jesus rose this man from the dead. Uh, he came out of his tomb and... Now, here it is, later, Jesus is sharing a meal. So, verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. There's deep appreciation that Jesus, that this group had, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, has for Jesus. And so, as he's traveling through their town, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Again, you see that pattern of the mealtime. Uh, just before the cross, here's another example in Matthew, back in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, you see an example of Jesus sharing right before he goes to the cross, before he's arrested and handed over to the uh, religious authorities there. Uh, you see him gathering for his last meal with his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 20. It reads this. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. And talks. And they have a dialogue, and you can read about the dialogue, but... What I want to highlight is they're sharing meals together. They're doing life together. Uh, they would, they would, it was customary for the Jews to share, share meals. Uh, the Passover is what they were uh, sharing in the Passover meal. And so with the Passover, they, they had a ceremony with certain rituals and they would tear pieces of bread and they would pass it to the person beside them and they would share a meal literally around the table. So that's one category, Jesus with his disciples. But here's another category, Jesus with outsiders. Uh, this was a f- way of forming community, of reaching new people. So in Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10, I want to read you a passage of scripture where you see Jesus visiting a man and being invited in. So this is another tax collector, a different man though. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. So unlike Levi, this was the chief. He was in charge of the tax collectors. And so he's rich. Tax collectors would, would sort of skim off the top that, from what they would collect. And in this way, they were, again, I mentioned, they were hated by their own countrymen. Now, verse 3, he was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. Uh, he was just a tiny man. And verse 4, so running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, and he shouts at Zacchaeus, who's up in the tree, just so he can catch a glimpse of Jesus. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it's necessary for me to stay at your house. And so he quickly came down. You can just picture Zacchaeus 
yeah, I want to do that. So he climbs down the tree, and he welcomed him joyfully. And all who saw it began to complain. And they're murmuring, he's going to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to and said to the Lord, Lord, or look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. We see a huge heart change. He's repenting of his old ways. And then Jesus says this, Today, salvation has come to this house. And Jesus told him. So he's already at the house with Zacchaeus having this meal. And it's like Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed with with his now uh, relationship with with God, and he's ready to follow Jesus. He and this evidence is shown by his true repentance. He's he wants to pay back everyone he's cheated. So Jesus says, "Today this man has has is, has been saved. Today salvation has come to this house." Jesus told him, "Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost." So you see, Jesus. Reaching a level of deep trust with an outsider. Somebody who is outside of the kingdom now has come into the kingdom. And after, here's another example. After the resurrection, Jesus, uh, he, he hands the baton to the disciples. So he's been traveling from town to town and he's gained quite a following. He's inviting people to follow him and some were. But after Jesus goes to the cross, he rises from the dead. He now passes his baton Essentially, the baton was representing sort of his mission to the disciples who now were to carry his mission forward and to reach from that, from that area of Jerusalem to the outer region and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And he passes this baton and essentially the early church, they now began a pattern of sharing a common table. That was, that was the way that they did things as well. This was their pattern. So look at Acts. And Acts is really the, it's a history book in the New Testament that sort of highlights the growth and the expansion of the Christian movement. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it reads this, They devoted themselves, this is the early church, the early Christians, the first Christians in the first century, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So the breaking of bread, again, they had this, pattern of sharing meals together and there's just this i don't know if you've ever been to a jewish uh, bakery before but there's this wide variety of, of jewish breads there's a bakery down in san diego that it's been a while since i've been there but i've really enjoyed uh, the variety at, at some jewish bakeries but this gathering where they would gather from house to house it, it was it was something they were devoted to you see that in acts 242 breaking bread together later on acts 246 it says this Every day, there's a description of the church, every day they devote themselves to meeting together in the temple, sort of as a large group, but then broke bread from house to house. They would meet in the temple as a large group, then they'd scatter, and from house to house, they would break bread together. And they, get this, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. So this was a sharing together, and it was a joyful gathering around the table. I want to ask you, who, who is around your table I want you to think about, have I ever taken a step to really invite people to move from outside of my world, outside of my life, to come in, pass through that threshold, come into my home, to that sacred space? Now, you just don't do that with anybody. It takes time to build trust. But you hit a point where you realize, uh, I, I think we're on the same page. I think we're, we've hit a level of, of community where now it's right for me to invite people to share a meal around my table. 
Yeah, I realize that's where I share meals with my family. It's 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 a sacred space. It's it's a uh, it's a place where we can just talk honestly and openly about life and what's going on as a family. But now, to bring people into that environment, I want you to really consider and reflect on who's around my table. Who have I invited to move outside of my world to my inner world? That's real community. Usually, this is a major breakthrough moment into church community. And for some of you, that has been that has been the significant moment where you felt like you were part of things here at OCC when people invited you into their home to share life around the table. Because whenever we gather around the table, we belong. Jesus, he actually, he made a way for very different people to belong, to come close to each other, to unite together around a common table. And this is another limitation of what we just can't experience when we're only doing uh, church and our spiritual life online. We're grateful to have an online platform, especially in this current culture. Um, we understand that it's just not wise for everyone to gather physically with others right now. But online, it, it, it does help us keep people connected. It helps people break the ice. Maybe you're newer to OCC. And, and that's, that's, that's the level of comfort where you're at with our church. And so maybe you're, you're tuning in each week and you're watching these messages and you're getting to know what it means to follow Christ or what it means to be involved in the church community and you're, you're learning about that experience. And online, it does. It helps break the ice. It's sort of a place where, where you can explore and, and in a safe place to investigate our church. But there does come a point where you realize, hey, I'm ready to share life face-to-face. You know, churches in the past, they, they built on this biblical tradition uh, of gathering around a common table through things like church picnics. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church picnic, but I certainly have through the years. I grew up in church, and so this was sort of a common experience that I had growing up. Maybe for you, that's a, that's a, a memory you, you hold. Or what about potlucks? Uh, I also... Uh, shared a number of potlucks growing up. This is where everyone pitches in, brings their favorite dish to pass and share, and you sort of see this spread of food on a table and, and a potlucks. You, you don't necessarily get everything, but you get, you know, sample a handful of things. But it's significant because people are bringing something that they that they enjoy. It's sort of the, the best of what they can cook up, and they bring that and they offer that at a potluck. Uh, another thing is just church part of church tradition was long meals, people just taking the time to enjoy one another. Uh, this is something, I would say, more of the past, where people just, you know, they enjoyed one another. Maybe it would be a long meal after after church on a Sunday. And there was just, there was not a rush to be somewhere. Uh, but this idea of breaking bread together, it's not, uh, this is a way of of building community. The challenge is, we don't, have time for that. We, we tend to have in-and-out lifestyles. We like in-and-out burger, and we like in-and-out lifestyles where we can just get in, get out, get our meal, and be gone. Uh, it, we have really no time, it seems like, in our culture and society to build community. We've lost our ability to really slow down because we're just go, go, go to the next thing. And being together, for some, has become an interruption. We just, how sure we have time for that. Your lives... My life, you know, our lives can be hurried and hurried. And so what happens is we're living our busy, hurried lives 
up until this point. But once we sit down at that common table, what we find is we've been separated all week long. But a meal together is it's more than just a logistic to work out, but it's a symbol of being united around that table. I want you to really think about think about that first time that you had that breakthrough of trust with, with someone at our church. And you, you felt like, wow, they, they've accepted me uh, into uh, their home. They've invited me into this uh, more sacred space. And maybe you've never had that yet. But I want to encourage you to reflect on this experience of gathering around a table and breaking bread together. Maybe you take a moment and just pause and reflect on, have, have, I, have, I, uh, have I moved into that place of deep trust in our community? Now, I want to sort of shift gears and talk about, is there ever a time to not share a meal with someone? Well, biblically, there, there are. There are some situations, there are some seasons where uh, refusing to share a meal is really the right thing to do. And the reason is because the symbol of sharing a meal around a common table is a symbol of unity. It's part of our common unity. We have a common table. We share. Things are right between us. We're in fellowship with one another. We're on the same page. However, when you recognize someone is out of step with God, um, that breaks fellowship. When they cross lines um, and have a pattern of, of of unrepentant sin, that's a time to refuse to share the table. So, first thing here is when there's a Christ follower with a pattern of unrepentant sin, meaning someone is continually crossing God's boundary lines in certain areas. They've stepped across uh, lines of, of, of immorality, and they don't see anything wrong with it. They're excusing it. They're refusing to stop going down the wrong road, and they're just like, ah, it's fine. I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, you know, God is gracious. Jesus died for my sin. Now, again, we're talking specifically about Christ followers. So I want to read you a passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul writes about this. Here's what he writes. To a church where there was rampant immorality that people were really bragging about. Paul heard about it, and he wrote this. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He's talking about breaking fellowship, refusing to share uh, a fellowship with others. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would, la- you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't, do not even eat with such a person. So he specifically, he's not talking about people who are outside the faith. He's not talking about people who are not yet Christ followers. He's talking about people who have chosen to follow Christ, but have a pattern of sexual morality. And he goes on and he listings greed, idolatry, verbally abusive, drunken, uh, drunkards, swindlers. Don't even eat with such a person. He's, don't share the table with this group of people. Now, that seems sort of unloving. You know, I've sometimes heard people just complain that Christians are so judgmental. But let's keep looking. Verse 12, Paul writes this, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Paul's saying, look, I'm not the judge of the outside world. Then he writes this, Don't you judge those who are inside? There's a certain group that, you know, that we're not to judge. And then there's a group that we're to um, be willing to speak into each other's life, to correct one another. And that's those who are on the inside of the faith. The church is to monitor 
the uh, patterns of of one another. We're to care for one another in that way. We're to we call it give and receive scriptural correction. Verse thirteen: God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So you clearly see the instruction to the churches. There are times to withdraw fellowship because uh, a person has chosen to keep going their own way and they're not willing to repent. They refuse to repent of doing wrong. We're not talking about gray areas. We're talking about black and white areas. God says, here's the boundary, here's the guardrail, and people blow right through it. And they do what they choose to do because that's what they want. They want what they want. And culturally, we hear this complaint that Christians are among sort of the most judgmental people. And I think that it should be said that we are actually the most loving people to those who are outside of the faith. For those who have not yet followed Christ, I hope it would be said of us that we're we're inclusive of people, we're inviting people to explore Christ. But once they choose to follow Christ, it is not an opportunity for us just to, to in, you know follow Christ and then live our own way. No, we're, we're to invite him to be our boss, our Lord, to be the master to do life his way, and to abandon our own way. So we need people who are, are serious about challenging unrepentant sin in our own lives and in others in the lives of others in the faith. And so to continue in fellowship with someone who's living an unrepentant life is to pretend with them. It's sort of like you know a person has crossed God's boundary line, but then you play along with that. You're playing What you're doing at that point is you're playing games. Uh, you're... you're putting a stamp on the falsehood. There's this duplicity that has gone on. They're no longer living in the light, and um, and they refuse to abandon the darkness that has infected them. Well, what Paul is saying is you need to refuse that person. You need to remove the evil person from among you. Now, meals and meetings to confront and challenge are very different than meals for fellowship, meaning sometimes you realize, I need to meet with someone and I need to warn them. And you, you do that. You, you recognize, I, I need to say something. I'm, I have a deep level of trust with this person, and I'm obligated to say something to warn them about their behavior. They're heading towards a cliff. They're going to damage themselves. They're going to damage their family. And, and so maybe that is a warning that takes place around a meal because you're, you're pleading with a person. This is a very, very difficult thing to do. It feels very loving to confront someone. But God, he is, he is, he is loving. He's also just. Truth matters to God. It needs to matter to us. And so that is a time to refuse a meal. When you realize you've confronted, you've warned, but a person just refuses to abandon their lifestyle of sin, and that's a time to withdraw from sharing that meal. You don't want to send the message that, hey, this is fine. You can you can continue to claim to be a Christ follower and then live just like the rest of the world. So that's one area. Another area is this. It's to... Refuse to share a meal with someone who's a gossip or a divisive person. First, let's look at this divisive person. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, it says this. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So, there's, there's a warning. Again, there's a warning when you recognize someone is causing a lot of damage to the unity of our church or to the unity of your group, you realize, man, this person needs to know they're, they're really divisive in how they're handling themselves. And I just, friend, I want to let you know, that's divisive. That's damaging our unity. I want to I warn you to, to walk away from that cliff and come back to unity. You try warning a person once. You try it a second time. After that, 
Paul writes to this man, this, this is from the book of Titus, a leader in a different region. He says, when you see a person who's just unwilling to be corrected in that way, after two warnings, you just separate yourself from them. Have nothing to do with them. You don't continue to share the meal. Again, in doing so, you would be stamping their divisive behavior. Again, this feels horrible when we have to do this. If you've ever had to do that, it's very difficult. But a lot of times, just the desire to give unlimited acceptance to people regardless of how they live brings great damage to people as they begin to live a lie and think that it's, there's no consequences. Another piece is this gossip piece, Proverbs 16, verse 28. In the book of Proverbs, you see uh, some real helpful uh, guidance in relating to those who have a pattern of gossip. It says this, it says, a contrary person spreads conflict, that's the divisive person, and a gossip separates close friends. Again, you, when you recognize that pattern, you give a warning, you invite people to repent of that, but if they refuse to do that, it's not wise to continue to share around the table. Now here's a third time, or third uh, situation, where it's best to refuse to share a meal. And this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's this, you refuse a meal with company who is corrupting you. Company who's corrupting you. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Paul writes this. He writes, do not be deceived. Anytime you read that, it's important because if th- this is a statement because we can be deceived. So do not be deceived. I don't think I could do I, I don't think I would fall for that. Well, you, you can be in this one. Bad company corrupts good morals. I have seen this over and over and over through the years in our church and just in interacting in in life. Bad company corrupts good morals. Who's corrupting you? Who, Who in your life, their patterns drag you backwards? Some of you, you have recognized that and you, you just call it out and you just admit. It's not helpful for me to spend time with groups of people who do this or that because it drags me backwards. It's corrupting me. And so as we're seeing, meals are important. Meals are more than just for food. This is about fellowship. It's about sharing with one another in partnership. It's a statement of trust and belonging. Finally, Jesus created communion around a table to help us to remember the gospel message. Communion is, we often call it the Lord's Supper. Communion is for those who belong to the body of Christ. It is a, it is a memorial. It's a memorial where we remember Christ. It's, it's actually the Lord's Supper was a gift that Jesus gave to remember who we are and whose we are. So we gather around the table and we, as Christ followers, practice something called the Lord's Supper where we use bread and the cup to remember the body of Jesus and the blood that was shed. And it helps us remember who we are. Well, who we are is we're sinners in need of forgiveness. The Bible says this, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is who we are. We're in desperate need of God's forgiveness. And then the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. Jesus shed his blood for us. It also reminds us of whose we are. We're totally dependent on Jesus' work on the cross. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 reads, For you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. See, the Lord's Supper is, it's interesting, the Lord's Supper is a ceremony that we often share around the table together. It's something we share in common with one another who remember 
the sacrifice that Jesus made. So in summary, meals around the table play a role in three things. Communion within the church. You know, we're communing with God as we share in the Lord's Supper. Our fellowship is, is right with the Lord. We're dealing with our sin. We're, we're right with Him. But also when we're right with God, we're right with one another. We share communion within the church around the table. Second is connection with those outside the church. This is a major trust-building time. When you, when you share your faith with others and you invite people into your world, that connection is formed, and you see that in those passages we looked at. And then also, meals play a role in, in correction. When necessary, for those who are Jesus' followers, uh, the refusal to share a meal is a correcting element of what God is trying to do to get someone's attention so that they'll abandon their life of sin and move back on track with Jesus. Now, a few final things as far as me- meaningful meals. Meaningful meals, like how can I improve when I gather around the table? Meaningful meals do this. They create curiosity with an expectation of long, honest answers. Curiosity, like good questions, like what was the hardest part of your day today? You know, that's a great question. That creates curiosity. When you ask a good question, you, it, it's challenging because then we got to focus. I tend to ask the easy questions like, Hey, did you have a good day? And the reason I think I asked that question is because I'm hoping for, for an easier conversation. Uh, but meaningful meals, they create curiosity. Another thing is meaningful meals use common questions that lead to deeper understanding. So try that. When you're, when you're around the table, try, try to ask deeper and deeper questions, follow-up questions to keep getting to a level of trust and deeper, uh, deeper knowing of one another. Meaningful meals also explore memories and traditions. Like, hey, what's your favorite uh, summer memory from childhood? Or, or how do you prepare for your Christmas holidays? And on and on. You think about memories and traditions. People, as soon as you ask those questions, people love to share their stories. A fourth thing here about meaningful meals is they ask spiritual questions to help people process further. It might be that people, they come to a church service and they've, they've gained insight from the message. Or a small group and they've gained insight but no one helps them process that further. And so a meaningful meal can be that opportunity to say, hey, what do you guys think about that message on Sunday? Or what do you think about uh, the small group and the discussion we had? And it gives you a chance to sort of circle back even to hardships people have shared. And you can follow up and see, how are you doing with that? But let's really consider as a church and reflect on how our community gathers together around tables. I'd like you to reflect on a few questions. The first is this. How does our community share meals together? What does that look like? Reflect on that. Maybe you snap a picture of that and reflect on that after we're done. Or do you eat with joyful and sincere hearts? That, that was the pattern of the early church was as they gathered and broke bread, they, they ate with joy and sincere hearts. Third question, how often should you get together to share a meal during the week? If you've never done this before, maybe it's, I'm going to try this. I'm just going to try it once. (laughs) Maybe not even weekly. I'm just going to try it once this year. Or maybe you do that once a year. How can you move that towards a more regular pattern? You know, most people eat 21 meals a week. And so how could each of us in our community share at least one of those meals with others? This is a really exciting opportunity to help build community here at OCC. And I want to encourage you on a few specific next steps. The first would be this, to spontaneously have lunch out. Go out with some people. Invite someone that you know is a part of our church. Go out and dine with them. Get to know them at a deeper level. That's the first thing. The second thing is is plan to attend our Lord's Summer the next time it's offered. That would be the evening of October the 10th. 
want to encourage you to be a part of that as we share in uh, communion, as we gather around the table and share in the bread and the cup together and we reflect on Jesus' sacrifice. And then the last step to consider taking is to really reflect on the question, who's around my table? Think about that. Who's around my table? As I, as I think through my patterns in my own life, in my own house, who, 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 do, I, who do I let in? Who, do I, who have I invited to be a part of, of community with me? I hope you'll consider applying this and really reflect on this whole series we've been through. And really glad you've been exploring uh, life here at OCC. So let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this final message in this series. I pray that you'd help us to wrestle through how do we apply this to our lives as we seek to form a stronger community of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.